We're so far into COVID, they know what it is that they're doing. They, the doctors, the hospitals. There's no reason to be afraid of it. There's no reason to be concerned for it. Advances in treatments over the last few years have made it possible to live with lung cancer for years after diagnosis. But living with lung cancer during the COVID pandemic is an entirely new complication. I'm Diane Mulligan. And I'm Sarah Beatty. Well, we're learning more about the risks every day, figuring out how to work, get health care and groceries, and see family and friends face-to-face are particularly challenging in the COVID era. This special series of episodes in the Living with Lung Cancer Hope with Answers podcast is designed to help you navigate the new COVID world while living with lung cancer. Lung cancer is a tough topic. It's a disease that affects patients, family, friends, co-workers, but first, it's a disease that affects people. The Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast brings you stories about people living, truly living, with lung cancer. The researchers dedicated to finding new breakthrough treatments and others who are working to bring hope into the lung cancer experience. You are in for a treat today. We get to chat with one of our favorite people, a member of the LCFA Speakers Bureau, Terry Conneran. She's been living with KRAS-positive lung cancer for more than three years, and she is a force to be reckoned with. Oh, that is for sure. Terry is an amazing example of how quickly lung cancer research is changing things for the better, giving patients more treatment options, including targeted therapies that take direct aim at a patient-specific tumor type. These targeted therapies are tested in clinical trials first to make sure they're the safest, most effective, and best treatments for a particular type of cancer. And these clinical trials are still happening even during COVID. And as a matter of fact, continuing lung cancer research is more important than ever. And no one knows that better than Terry, whose advocacy work includes making the lung cancer journey easier for fellow KRAS-positive patients. Let's get right to her story. So you were diagnosed with stage 3A non-small cell lung cancer. So there's a lot of letters in there um, in 2000, January 2017. So right at the beginning of the year. Tell us about that diagnosis journey. What made you think, boy, I really better go get something checked out. You know, what's really funny is that looking back, it all makes more sense. But when I was going through it, it just seemed like, oh, well, it's a little cold. Oh, it's a little allergies. It's asthma. I go to the doctor. The doctor's like, oh, yeah, it's definitely asthma. Let's try the inhaler and and give you a little bit of time to work with it. I get busy with life go back and forth. And then a couple of days before Christmas, after doing this for probably on again, off again for about a year and a half, I finally went back to the doctor a couple of days before Christmas and was like, I'm sick. You know, I, I think I just need an antibiotic. And she listened to my lungs and she could hear gurgling. She's like, oh, you definitely have pneumonia. Let's just do a chest x-ray. And I got to tell you that chest x-ray, because there was so much fluid my lungs, it highlighted that there was a tumor there. Well, I think having the diagnosis of the chest x-ray and then seeing it was pneumonia justified, okay, I'm really sick. There's really something we need to do. 
And then after the first of the year, when I went back for the follow-up and we realized it was a lot more and then truly began the diagnostic journey, finding out that when you have something that's growing inside of you, and now I can take on this battle because you can't battle something that's just unknown and growing behind you and just being sneaky and stealth-like, right? Now we know it. Now we can face it. Now we can face it head on. I love that. It's, it's so true. When you, you know, yes, it's scary to find out that you have cancer. There is no question about that. But then you're able to make a plan. And I would think that that gives you a bit of solace that you can at least move forward. Is that what you felt? Well, I actually felt empowered. Yep. Because I felt like now I can do something. Now it makes sense. Why have I been feeling so tired and fatigued? And, you know, I didn't really have like, I mean, this was not diagnosed like breaking bad. I'm not coughing up blood. Okay. I just like, (laughs) you know, and like sinus and drainage and Sudafed and all the usual stuff that you take for allergies, you know, OTC. So it gave me a sense of, okay, now I know what I'm fighting. Now let's fight it. Now let's come up with a good battle plan. Okay. And so that's when truly you start going around and talking to the doctors and learning the new language. Right. And that language, that's like a crash course, right? I mean, uh, even find KRAS. Um, I mean, biomarkers. It immunology. Yes, immunology, oh immunotherapy. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Or even as simple as NSCLC, right? Which is a tongue twister, okay? And it's like, what is that? Oh, it's non-small cell lung cancer. <laughs> it's like, just seeing that, you'd have no idea. So you're, you're landed in a foreign planet and you're not feeling well. And you're surrounded by people that want to poke you and prod you and stick you in machines and you have no idea what they are, right? So that's where you kind of begin your journey. And that's where I began mine. And so that's where, that's why I don't want other people to feel alone because I know that sense of just feeling so disconnected and disenfranchised and nowhere to go. Overwhelmed is an understatement to be perfectly frank. It's just, it's just mind blown and, and tired and just, but tired, it just an exhaustion that I, I've got this battle I need to fight and how, how am I going to do this? And let's, you know, like, I guess, I don't know. I personally have never really gone to like fight in a war, like in combat, except in cancer. And in cancer, I had to go out and become armed with what tools and what weapons I needed and the right corporals and lieutenants and colonels, and forgive me, because I don't know all, all, all the terminology, but all the right pieces that I need. So I can take this on. What a description. Oh my gosh. So you are currently, here's another, here's another term, NED, explain that. Yeah. So NED is actually the thing you want to be. If you're going to be anything with cancer, you want to be NED. Um, I've had cancer three different times from the first diagnosis to treatment and became NED, no evidence of disease from and no evidence of disease, kept doing my follow-up scans, and we had a recurrence, recurrence, went through treatment, back to NED. And then again, <laughs> back to another treatment, another recurrence, and back to NED. And NED is the place I wanna be, 
And I want as many people to be here as possible. Because once you start joining in this fight and having this, even though I may not have cancer today, I still have to stay monitored. I still go in for scans every three months. I see my doctors all the time. I still manage to make my out-of-pocket every year. And, you know, the, the thing is that, you know, you need to be comfortable with that fact and that this is now like a new chronic disease. It's like asthma or something. You have to be followed up. And so you, this is what I just really have so much respect for you. Um, you have founded a biomarker group and we work with a number of biomarker groups, but your biomarker is KRAS. And so part of your fabulous sense of humor is that you're the KRAS kickers, right? Yes, indeed. We and want some KRAS. <laughs> some KRAS. <laughs> so tell us, you know, quickly what the advocate journey is like, you know, and you, cause you, you talk so eloquently about not wanting other people to face what you faced. And so is that part of what led you to set up KRAS Kickers? Yes, it is. What started the, the journey is obviously being diagnosed with lung cancer because I never would have volunteered for that role. And then going through the journey and just looking for connections and looking for people and not wanting to be alone and then becoming connected with like support groups and one thing led to another and the volunteer efforts and stuff and I can see the value in being able to connect with other people from that value and then I didn't find out what my biomarker was until about three years into almost three years into the journey that I'm KRAS and so immediately I went looking for my KRAS community. They have them for EGFR and ALK and ROS1 and you know everything else. It's like, where's my, where's my group? So I went looking for my people and there wasn't an organization that already had a group. And so I started one called the KRAS Kickers. And the term just is as simple as any other thing. I'm laying in bed thinking, man, now that I know the name of this devil I've been battling is KRAS, I really want to kick some KRAS. Rass. <laughs> Rass. You want to kick the RAS. <laughs> so that's right. So we're here to kick cancer's KRAS. And, you know, I got to tell you, do you have a second I can explain to you how, what I found out about KRAS during this? Yes. Sure. I had no idea. So it turns out that KRAS was one of the very first um, oncogenes, which means one of the very first biomarkers they determined is a cause of cancer. And oncogene, I just want to explain very quickly, is a driver. It's the thing that causes the cancer to grow. Exactly. They identified it nearly 40 years ago. It was one of the very first biomarkers they identified. They didn't even have a terminology for it. They determined that it is causing cancer. And so they went chasing after it. And they have found treatments for many other types of cancers like EGFR was a result of them looking to try and find a cure or a treatment for KRAS. So after 40 years, there has been no treatment specific to it because the way it's shaped, it's really kind of like, I guess it's like a slippery protein. I don't know. I'm sure that's not a technical scientific term, but it's difficult to attach to it to actually get in there and destroy the cancer so that your body can be healthy again. So we went from that to now we actually have found, we 
the we, the researchers, I'm not a researcher, the researcher community has found that they have a way to be able to get in there to treat this, to attack this so that you can live. Now there's different kinds of KRAS and this one, this particular clinical trial, they've just got so much excitement about. And let me tell you, it is so exciting. 40 years, can you imagine? So now we've actually got something that is showing up as a possibility and it's doing really well. And people are over the moon, over the moon, as far as this KRAS G12C. It is. It's it's just so exciting. So we know that Amgen right now is currently enrolling for phase one and phase two clinical trials, investigating the KRAS G12C inhibitors. Um, and of course, an inhibitors would um, stop or or delay the cancer's growth. I mean, right? That's how that that would that's how the inhibitor would work. Um, and even though you're at this point not eligible for the clinical trial because you're NED, which is great, um, why is this hopeful for someone like you? Why is this important? Why should people still be um, involved in these clinical trials? Well, that's a great question. You know, it's not just about becoming involved in a clinical trial. It's about taking ownership of your own journey in fighting this battle. And in many cases, the best treatment is a clinical trial for you. And you need, to be, you need to be able to sit down and have that open conversation with your doctor to be able to know exactly what is right. And many, many times it really is what you should do. The clinical trials going on right now, if I had that and I was in that situation and my doctor was all over it, I would be 100% for it. And that's where I would go, what I would go and do. I think too, people don't understand that um, um, there's a mutation that happens within, for instance, KRAS. And so that's why you have to go back to see if everything is okay. And people have to go back every three months to see if the treatment that they're getting is still working. Um, And that these clinical trials, then um, if if they're positive, they can lead to another step of treatment for people, um, right? For sure. But a lot of the confused Okay, so I haven't needed a clinical trial just because I just haven't needed to be on one. I've looked at them, but I just didn't qualify for them properly. You know, the thing is that I have learned what a clinical trial is all about. And I thought, wow, you know, I really don't want to be somebody's guinea pig. Right, exactly. So many people think that. Yep. But that's not the case. It turns out, I mean, you're more like a prize poodle in there. You know, you're, you're in there and they're comparing it to the standard of care. And so you are getting treatment. You may be getting better treatment specific to whatever it is that's actually causing your cancer. From treating that particular thing, if things start going sideways, you can pull out of the, you can pull out of the clinical trial. And in many ways, they're able to identify how well you're doing faster, which I got to tell you, as the patient, just knowing how much better or how much worse I'm doing immediately is such a relief that rather than sitting down and waiting idly. Unknown, right? Oh. So it gives you a lot more peace. So it gives you that opportunity to do that. You know, and it's not just about a clinical trial for KRAS, to be honest. I mean, they've got clinical trials for so many different pieces surrounding it that you need to be able to just open up your mind and your heart to be able to look at it and say, okay, is this the best battle plan for me? Right. 
Absolutely. That's a great way to put it. That's a wonderful way to put it. So we are in everyone, you know, living through COVID right now. And there are a lot of people who are really concerned about accessing care of any kind um, and accessing something like a clinical trial during COVID, because if you are immune compromised, you've got a bigger risk um, of, of problems. But you're getting um, other types of care right now. What would you say to someone feeling uncomfortable about accessing lung cancer care of any kind during COVID? You know, right now, we're so far into COVID, they know what it is that they're doing. They, the doctors, the hospitals. As far as being able to go in there, I'm actually... I'm probably at a doctor at least once or twice a week now, actually having to go in physically because it's just, it works out that way that all these scans are due and blood tests are due and things that I actually need to be present for. There's no reason to be afraid of it. There's no reason to be concerned for it. They actually have managed it so much better that if there's even the slightest hint of COVID, they don't, they don't want they don't want it around their prize doctors either any more than they want it around their patients, you know, and I'm still considered immune compromised and I have some other issues that make things a little bit more complicated as well. So I am particularly high risk, you know, having had, um, you know, one of my lobes removed from my lung and one of my lung lobes removed a lobectomy. Um, puts me at a greater, greater risk that if I have a problem. And so I, if I thought it was going to be an issue, I had to tell you, I wouldn't be going. And I'm telling you, I am going. And everybody I talk to, it's like, let's talk this through because they don't want you there sick. Not like that. They want to be able to manage you because they too want to be healthy. So let's just be real. <laughs> they do. And, but the other thing that I think is for each person, it's that individual decision but having the discussion and looking at what the protocols are and saying, am I comfortable with this and weighing the pros and cons is really, really important. But the, the asking the questions, would you agree, is probably the most important thing that you should do. Oh, the best thing you can do is ask a question. The best thing you should do is ask a question. If you don't understand the answer, ask them again. Rephrase your question because it is your your it's your body, okay? Ask them to explain it to you and put it in terms that you can understand. And that's also the, the value of getting a second opinion or even going to something like a clinical trial. You have the opportunity of another set of eyes, another educated doctor looking at you, in fact, a whole host of doctors looking at you and all your charts so they know what's going on. Right, right. So what would you tell other lung cancer patients about participating in a clinical trial right now or anytime? What's, what, what is that one thing that they should know from, from your heart? You know, from my heart, like I said, I have learned so much in this, but from my heart, you know, it, it's, an option. It's a legitimate option that you need to completely be open and honestly evaluate because it is going to be the best choice for you if that's what your doctor says. You need to be able to be open to it and look at all the different options. And keep in mind that if you do qualify for a clinical trial, there is an application process and they're going to weed you out if they don't think it is best for you because they want what's best for you as well. Right. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. This has been fascinating, hasn't it, Sarah? Terry, you are just, you're one of my favorite people because of your enthusiasm and, and your smile, which and your I smile. wish everybody in the podcast world could see it. <laughs> you can hear it though. This is what I adore about Terry. And I just feel like, you know, if you've got Terry Connor and uh, doing battle against KRAS, I don't know that KRAS stands a chance. That's right. Absolutely. I certainly hope you're right. You know, and in the meantime, I'm going back and doing my follow-up and doing my scans because my plan is to kick cancer's KRAS best I can. I love that. Terry, thank you for your time today. We really appreciate it. It was great to chat with you. You too. Well, thank you guys so much. I love Terry's enthusiasm and determination to make sure she's accessing the care she needs, working with her medical team to make sure COVID protocols are keeping her and others safe. Kicking cancer's KRAS, that's Terry. Up next, we'll talk to the principal investigator for a current KRAS clinical trial at Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia. The Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast is produced as part of LCFA's mission, raising the public's awareness and serving as a resource for patients or anyone seeking answers, hope, and access to updated treatment information, scientific investigation, and clinical trials. We're talking about KRAS clinical trials today, which is so exciting because until recently, there weren't any targeted therapies in clinical trials for KRAS at all. And these trials are continuing, even during the COVID pandemic. One of them is taking place at Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia. It's led by Dr. Hussein Borgai, a thoracic oncologist who has a knack for explaining, clearly explaining the complicated details of a clinical trial. He starts by helping us understand the role biomarkers like KRAS and targeted therapies play in lung cancer treatment. Think of a biomarker as um, an indicator, so to speak, uh, that would point us to a uh, um, specific uh, protein or a molecule on a, on a cancer cell that can actually help us either identify that particular cancer or potentially come up with very specific treatments uh, for that indicator. The term targeted therapy is usually reserved for treatments that, as the name suggests, are specifically designed to target these potential biomarkers or indicators, if you will. For the most part, these are simple alterations uh, in a DNA of a cancer cell, basically. We call these mutations. Sometimes we refer to them as translocations. So we have different terms to define these alterations that we see. But the bottom line is that we are looking for something specific that we think has led to the formation of the cancer that now we can target with a targeted therapy to stop it from doing whatever it is that's doing. What a great explanation. That is super. I love how you said that. So I also want you to explain, if you would, what a clinical trial is and what role it plays in the treatment for an individual patient and how it moves forward. And, you know, here's another one of those terms, the standard of care for all patients. 
I think that people hear standard of care, they hear clinical trials, they may have an idea what all that means, but you're so good at explaining. Would you please explain these terms as well? Again, I'll do my best. Thank you. So let's start with the general premise. No drug, at least in the U.S. and Western Europe, ever becomes approved or become available for the rest of us to use unless it has gone through the process of clinical trials. The standard of care treatment is a treatment that has gone through a rigorous clinical trial program to show that the treatment, whatever it is, is effective and that it is not superbly toxic to patients who might benefit from that treatment. Every time you walk into a doctor's office and you are prescribed an antibiotic, a blood pressure medicine, uh, or a cancer therapy, that drug has gone through the clinical trial process to become approved and to become available for the rest of us as the standard of care for the management of the, of the disease. Clinical trials are done in many different phases. We talk about phase one, phase two, phase three, and nowadays even phase four trials. The idea here is that when a potential treatment is identified as being effective in a laboratory setting, it is introduced into the clinical practice through the phase one clinical trials. This is basically an investigation of a new agent that for the most part has not been tested before. And the goal there is to determine what the potential side effects of this particular new drug is when we give it to patients. If it is successful there and found not to be very toxic and moves to phase two, where we actually start looking at how effective it is in particular diseases in our case, uh, let's say lung cancer, which is what I deal with. Um, and the, the, the usual goal there is to say, okay, if we treat 40, 50, 100 patients with a specific kind of lung cancer with this potential new drug, what exactly happens in terms of shrinkage of the tumor, um, in terms of the period of time we can keep the cancer at bay, and also, what other potential side effects could come out of a larger patient population? If that is successful, then we move on to a phase three, where we actually compare this new treatment that we already have investigated in a phase one and a phase two, and compare it against what we would consider to be the standard of care for that time for that cancer. And this is basically a head-to-head -head comparison. Since we're in the football era, it's like watching the Eagles play the 49ers and who is better. So is the treatment better than what we are already using? And is it less toxic or is, does it have the same kind of toxicities, but still better? Without participation of patients, none of this would be possible. I think one thing that we on when it comes to treatment of cancer, what we have now is simply not enough and not acceptable. So if we don't do anything, if we do not get involved in clinical trials, 
then we cannot develop new treatments. Therefore, we can never make the progress that we're all hoping for. That's so fascinating, the description of what the goal is with each of the clinical trial phases. I've never heard it um, explained so simply. That's very helpful to understand what science is trying to find in each of those phases. You're working on the KRAS biomarker, which I understand has been identified for almost 40 years or about 40 years, but it was there was no treatment for it until relatively recently. Can you explain why that was? So... In specifically lung cancer, again, that's my area, so I'm sorry that I keep going to it. That's the area I know best. KRAS has been identified as one of those alterations or mutations that we talked about in the beginning for a very long time in lung cancer. Why? Because we had done these genetic analyses and these sequencing on um, lung cancer tumors for a long time, and we sort of knew that there were all of these little alterations. And we were able in the old days, and by, when I say we, I mean colleagues who came before me clearly, had made a correlation between the presence or absence of these alterations and how patients did from um, just a clinical follow-up or response to the available treatments in that era. What we've come to realize is that what we used to call a KRAS mutation is in fact a combination of many different mutations in different parts of a gene. So imagine that the, the, the KRAS gene is, just as an example, one centimeter long, and there are multiple areas along those centimeter marks, if you look on a ruler, that you can have an alteration. So there are many, many different forms of KRAS mutation. And it does appear that these specific different types of KRAS can, in fact, biologically behave a little bit differently from each other in terms of, you know, if a patient has a particular mutation, might do better with chemo versus the other one who might not do quite as well. If you fast forward, then we come to an era where we were actually able to identify and make targeted therapies for other mutations. And for a long time, because of the structure of KRAS itself, and because of the way these mutations were coming about biologically, it was felt that the chemistry required to make a drug that would be specific to KRAS is impossible. And that was the old teaching, you cannot target KRAS. Therefore, in the beginning, a lot of our efforts were to uh, use drugs that would hit KRAS a little bit above or a little bit below the pathway, and also think of these pathway as a cascading event, such that if you interfere with something on the surface of a cancer cell, then multiple steps below that surface can happen and make things either grow or not grow or cause more problems or less problems. So it's a cascading phenomenon. So we were trying to find drugs that would hit the cascade but not KRAS itself. Well, um, a few very smart individuals figured that, well, you know, the chemistry can be worked out, then you can have specific targeted therapies for different kind of KRAS mutation. So now we're at, a, at an era where for one particular KRAS called G12C, which simply tells the scientists and the physicians 
where that mutation, that alteration in the gene is. Now we have two or three different drugs that are specifically designed to inhibit that particular mutation, so targeting that alteration. And what we're finding, at least based on some preliminary data, is that these drugs can be effective in uh, stopping cancers that have this G12C from progressing. What we don't know really, and we need more information through the clinical trials that are ongoing, is how effective exactly are they? How long can we keep the cancer under control by using the specific therapies? Are there patient populations even within this G12C, which right now appears to be a very homogeneous patient population who would or would not benefit more or less. So there's a lot of work that we have to do. Um, can we combine these inhibitors with different drugs? Um, all of that work is ongoing. However, this is extremely exciting because it is really the first time that we have three or four drugs for a phenomena that we have identified, as you said, 40 years ago, and we're just to we're just beginning to understand how complicated this really is. You know, having a drug for G12C, then we need a drug for G12D, and then there are different subtypes. So um, it's exciting. It does indicate that the science is progressing, but it also points to the fact that cancer is complicated because people are complicated, and that more work, more research, more clinical investigation is needed to find the answer to this common problem. You're the principal investigator, the head doc, for the new clinical trials for KRAS G12C mutation. And you just gave us a great understanding about the hope for people on this trial. If someone has this type of cancer and finds a clinical trial that treats KRAS G12C, how does a patient go about deciding if this is the right trial for them? And what should they consider, especially in this COVID world? Um, so you packed a couple of really good questions in that one question. So let's see if we can unpack it a little bit at a time. Uh, first of all, I'm the head doctor for the G12C um, lung trials here at Fox Chase. So participation in a clinical trial, first and foremost, is a voluntary thing. Nobody can force a patient to enter a clinical trial because it's investigational. So first of all, the patient has to decide if he or she is comfortable with an experimental drug because as excited as I am about this drug and as good as I think this is working, uh, I just finished telling you that we still don't know a lot about it so we have to find out. So it is always the potential that a patient can enter a clinical trial and not have the clinical benefit that we hope a patient would have. And in fact, and unfortunately, suffer side effects because all of these drugs, as good as they are and as targeted as they are, still carry side effects with them. So I think that is very important, which therefore brings me to a point that a patient who agrees to participate in a clinical trial, an experimental protocol, actually has a lot of altruistic characteristics because you're putting yourself at risk of getting a side effect for an experimental drug that you might not necessarily benefit from. So I think it's a very brave thing for a patient to agree to go on a clinical trial. And we appreciate that and we understand that as clinicians and researchers who do this. Um, but we feel it's ethical and I think it's our job, in fact, to ask our patients and to present our patients with these options. So if a patient has a G12C, um, 
first they have to find out where they can have access to clinical trials. For that, there are a lot of resources available. For instance, a lot of the NCI-designated cancer centers in our neighborhoods and in our areas have web pages where they actually tell you what clinical trials they have for the type of diseases that they want. For instance, Fox Chase website has a patient-facing page where we list the clinical trials by, by disease site. And then also, we have a very robust, what we call phase one program with all these new drugs that either other physicians or patients can have access to and can see the list of trials available. Then the NIH, actually, the National Institute of Health, has a very robust clinical trial webpage where you can put your zip code, you can put in the cancer that you're looking for a clinical trial, and you press a couple of buttons, and the list of trials close to your zip code, anyway, appear. And you can decide if one of those sites is close enough for you to call. And actually, the site gives you some contact information uh, and at least the name of the principal investigator and all of that. And you can contact and ask to be evaluated for participation in the clinical trial. So there are actually multiple really good sites that people can go to. However, just knowing that there is a trial available at Fox Chase doesn't mean that you automatically qualify. The process of selecting and enrolling individuals for clinical trials is, in fact, a complicated and robust process, highly regulated. It requires a thorough evaluation by a team that knows how to do clinical trials. Um, there are checklists of eligibility that we have to go through. And even though it sounds like there's a lot of work for a trial, I have to say it is absolutely essential for us to make sure that we're putting the right person on the right trial because we want to give the right drug to the right patient. We don't want to you know, enroll somebody who's not qualified because then the results are completely uninterpretable. Uh, and then you could have put a patient at risk unnecessarily with a drug that is just not indicated for them. So unfortunately, there's always a little bit of a delay in getting someone enrolled in a clinical trial, but that's absolutely on purpose. It's by design, and it's to make sure that we select the right people for these studies. You know, I've talked to two different people in the past week who um, are not eligible for your current trial because they're G12D um, KRAS, but and that's that's starting to get, I think, a little bit complicated um, for for most people to try to sort through this. Are people's um, thoracic oncologists, their lung cancer specialist, a good place to start a conversation um, if you think, I don't know where to find this information on a website, or I don't know, I I'm having trouble interpreting if this might be a good option for me? I would say absolutely. I think, honestly, medical oncologists and the nursing staff that work with cancer patients in any place, are usually their patient's best advocates. And they look for studies. And I cannot tell you how many times I get emails or phone calls from colleagues around Fox Chase to inquire if we have a study for a particular patient. Um, and that's because we all, first of all, share this vision that without clinical trials, we don't develop new drugs, and also share the interest in having a patient do well um, and, and maximize the potential benefits that they can have. So 
I think a lot of medical oncologists and you know other oncologist colleagues are really good sources. And because the information gets disseminated quite freely, hey, we have this study, we have that study, uh, G12C is doing this and that, and there's a this response rate versus that. A lot of oncologists hear about this and they can share that information with their patients and at least prompt sometimes a patient if they're interested in clinical trials. Uh, but yeah, I do agree that for a lot of patients, if going to web pages and websites is overwhelming, talking to their physicians about potential clinical trials for their specific cancer is a very good place to start the, the discussion. Doctor, I just read recently that clinical trial enrollment, the number of people enrolling in clinical trials is down in cancer trials specifically by 33%, down by a third. Certainly, we think this has to do with COVID. We know that people are even going to see their doctors less often right now. Concerns about being out and being susceptible to COVID when talking about lung cancer is especially a serious concern. So how do you go about keeping patients safe during a lung cancer diagnosis as well as during clinical trials? Great point. Um, unfortunately, you're right. Participation in clinical trials has uh, significantly dropped across the country because of COVID. And also, even more unfortunate, uh, cancer diagnosis has actually dropped because of COVID. There is there is a legitimate concern. We have all seen the data. We know that if you are in an area where you're exposed to individuals for a longer period of time uh, than 15 or 20 minutes, then you can potentially catch uh, COVID. But we also know that taking precautions help tremendously, wearing masks, hand washing, avoiding people who have signs such as a cough, shortness of breath, fever, all of that can be quite helpful and minimizing the impact of COVID on a general patient population that does not have COVID at this point. So what have we done? Just as an example, again at Fox Chase, we have had very strict criteria for screening every individual staff, patients, family members who want to enter the cancer center. First of all, and again, this is an unfortunate side effect, but it's absolutely needed. We have stopped allowing family members to enter the cancer center. The more people come in, the higher the risk. It's just simple statistics. Yes, it's difficult, especially when it comes to cancer care and all of that, but we're using other methods. Uh, we're getting people on phone calls and Zoom meetings and whatever we can do, um, to, or telehealth, I should say, so that everybody is involved and knows exactly what's going on with the loved one who's sitting in our patient in our offices. So by minimizing the number of people who enter a cancer center or a doctor's office, we have already cut down significantly on potential exposure. Second, medical staff, nursing staff, they're really good about saying, look, I don't feel good today. I'm going to stay home or I'm going to go get tested because they realize, especially in a cancer center, bringing something like COVID to a cancer patient population could be devastating and nobody wants to be responsible for anything like that. So by going through a series of questions that sound silly, have you traveled, have you been in touch with somebody, do you have a fever, we actually are able to identify potential, I'm not saying everybody who comes in who has a slight temperature has COVID, but if we see somebody like that, we have a separate place, completely isolated, we do screening, we do testing, and then if everything is negative, then we allow the individual to enter. So in a way, we have created an environment in most of our hospitals and cancer centers and doctor's offices where potentially you're safer than anywhere else 
except for your own home from COVID. So there is little reason to postpone your screening stuff. Like for the love of God, if you need a mammogram, you need a colonoscopy, you're being coughing and it's getting worse, please see your physician, get your screening done, get that CT, get that chest x-ray, whatever it is, because we can deal with COVID even if God forbid you get it. And I just told you we are doing our best to prevent exposure, but cancer doesn't wait. Uh, cancer doesn't care if COVID is around or not. Uh, and I think therefore it's imperative for you to do all of the things that you would normally do uh, to identify it. And then unfortunately, if you are diagnosed with cancer, the treatment facilities are still as protected as they can be. So whether you're getting standard of care treatment or participating in a clinical trial, I think you are well protected and, and we're doing our best to avoid the, the impact of COVID. I will never be able to look you in the eye and promise you 100% if you come to see me, you'll never have exposure to COVID. I mean, I, I just cannot do that. But I can tell you, I think your risk is very, very low. You know, that's all I can really say about our experiences here. And you know what? I have a 90-year-old father. I have an 80-year-old mother. They have to go see their physicians, and I'm nervous about it. Uh, my parents have been hospitalized during COVID. You know, elderly parents. Um, I have kids in college who've been sick. I have a wife who has a history, and we worry about it. But you can't put the rest of your, rest of your life on hold and not do what you need to do to stay healthy because of this COVID. You take the precautions and you proceed with what you have to do. That's very helpful information. We appreciate it. What, I think in the moments we have left here, what is the most exciting element of your clinical trial work um, for KRAS right now? To me, you know, on the outside of this, I would be so excited to have finally something, you know, Finally, I've got something that I can that I can offer you. What element of of the clinical trial that you're working on um, gets you out of bed in the morning and makes you most excited to come in and get to work? I think the hope with any clinical trial, and I think that's part of the bias that goes into it. The hope is that this drug is going to do it. This drug is going to keep my patients alive for a very long time. And before this drug stops working, I'm going to have another drug or I'm going to have another combination. And therefore, I can continue. But then what gets me out of bed every day is that I know one of these days there's going to be something that's going to be yet another breakthrough, just like we've had with some of the other targeted therapies for EGFR or ACK, or we've had with immunotherapy. So the exciting thing about the current available drugs for KRAS G12C is that it is the first time we've broken that barrier. After all these years, we have proven to ourselves that, look, this is a problem we can overcome. This might be just the first salvo in our fight against G12C or other KRAS. There is for sure more to come. And as every generation, things are gonna get better, but this is a great place to start. We have targeted therapies, we have two or three of them, they all look like they're tolerable. It looks like we're getting good responses. It's just that it's a little too early. We don't have enough to say, hey, this is the home run we were hoping for. And we're still having given up. We're doing everything we can. But I think the exciting part of it is that 
for a mutation that has plagued us for such a long time and is one of the more common mutations, we finally have the science to come up with targeted therapies. And we're going to build on this. We're going to get better. And I think the future for this is going to be just as bright as it is for many other targeted therapies. We are so grateful to Dr. Borgai for taking the time to share information about the current KRAS clinical trials on the Hope With Answers podcast. He helps make it clear how important clinical trials are to the next treatment breakthrough. It's especially reassuring to get his perspective on keeping patients as safe as possible while getting care during COVID. Join us next time on the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast for another in-depth look at how the latest cutting-edge lung cancer research is helping people live longer, healthier lives. Make sure to subscribe to the Hope With Answers Living With Lung Cancer podcast. You'll be notified every time a new episode is available. Visit us online at lcfamerica.org, where you can find more information about the latest in lung cancer research, new treatments, and more. You can also join the conversation with LCFA on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.